Amen. You may be seated. If you're a child of God, as much as trials hurt sometimes, they never harm. They always refine. Even through the tears, God is at work making us like Jesus. And most of the times, we would never choose to have them. You know what? We would never grow. It's a mystery. It really is. But God is with us. And because Christ is risen and reigning, every one of your trials and struggles must work for you and not against you. The devil never wins, ultimately speaking. The flesh never wins, ultimately speaking. The world never wins, ultimately speaking, in the lives and hearts of the children of God. We, we don't walk fully in the victory that is ours in Christ because we don't meditate on it. Do me a favor. Go home and read Heidel, Heidelberg Catechism Question 1. Let that be your meditation this afternoon. I promise you it will pay off. He's for you, not against you. But this is a fallen world with a lot of suffering. He's redeemed it all for His children. So trust Him. I turn to Romans chapter 1, please. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. <clears throat> I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith and for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him, honor God, him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Thus far God's word. Let's pray together. <coughs> Lord, this is your word. We, we pray that you would help us to believe it, to trust it. As we read earlier, to prioritize it over much fine gold, over much fine food, over much anything else that we might know you and love you and live for you. So help me this morning to preach your word in the power of the Holy Spirit. Cleanse me from sin. Fill me with your spirit. Focus me on your word. Deliver me from distraction. And the same for us, Lord. Help us to focus on it as your word, to love it, to hear it, to delight in it, to live according to its light, to hide it in our hearts that we might love you and not sin against you. So Lord, bless the preaching and the hearing of your word. May your word run and be glorified. May souls be converted and sanctified. We trust you for it. And give you praise. In Jesus' name. Amen. 
imagine that you and a friend are walking through the woods. And you've gone pretty deep into the woods and suddenly you come upon this old, sort of overgrown, abandoned house. And imagine your friend looking at that house and being in awe and saying, what a marvel of nature. Look what time and chance has produced. Isn't it amazing that nature has built this structure? What would you think of him or her? Might you reach over and touch their forehead to see if they had a fever? It would be silly, wouldn't it? To come upon a house in the woods and think that nature built it. It just happened by chance. It didn't really have a cause. You would think they were being very foolish because it would be obvious this house was fashioned by a builder. You wouldn't even begin to believe your friend's wild speculation no matter how sophisticated it might be. I made that story silly on purpose. And you'll see why in a minute. But both Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 begin this way. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. So linking with our verse 18 last week, we see that suppression of God being proclaimed in those two Psalms. And before you get offended by the word fool and think it's calling you stupid, it's not. In the Bible, that accusation of fool is a moral accusation, not an intellectual one. Some of the most foolish people alive are some of the most well-educated. So it's not a matter of being, calling somebody stupid, although Scripture sometimes does that. But the accusation of foolishness is more an accusation of rebellion than it is of stupidity. Remember what a fool was in our study of Ecclesiastes. A fool is one who turns away from God in his revelation, who rebels against God, who rejects God and His truth and His commandments. And so you see that played out in Psalm 14 and 53 where it says, The fool says in his heart there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There's none that does good. The Bible starts with God. It doesn't try to prove Him because it's not necessary to prove Him. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, the Word, John 1. See how those two link together. So when you hear someone claim that there is no God, or that creation doesn't clearly demonstrate His existence, do you see them as foolishly suppressing the truth? Or are you intimidated by them? Would you see them like you would see your friend as being silly and foolish in the opening story? Hopefully after today's sermon you will. And I'm not, I'm not going to tell you to be condescending or, or rude or mean to anyone. That's not the point. But what I am going to say to you is when people don't claim to believe in God, don't believe them. So much more. This is not going to be a sermon about apologetic methodology. Okay? I'm presuppositional because I think the Word is. But we're going to, we can talk about that later. I, I simply really, for the most part, just want to focus in on this text in Romans and highlight some critical words in this text and get me and you to ask ourselves, do I believe God's Word? Because it'll set you free if you believe it. And it'll point you in the right direction if you believe it. And it'll help you in your interaction with those around you. It'll help you keep the gospel the main thing. Because that's what the world, flesh, and devil wants to veer you away from. 
So, today, the, the title is Without Excuse. We're going to look at verses 19 to 23. But what have we seen so far as we've looked in Romans? We've seen Paul introduce himself, and we've remembered that this is Saul. This is the guy who wanted to destroy the church. That God has converted, and not just converted, but made an apostle and set him apart, and he is preaching the gospel, the gospel testified to in the Holy Scriptures in the Old Testament as well as the New. He's delighted to come to Rome to preach the gospel. He's wanted to do it for a long time to preach the gospel. Notice to believers when we talk about that, and you can go, you can go read that too. Of course, he wants to have fruit among unbelievers as well. He's given us his theme statement, and this is the theme statement for the whole book in verses 16 and 17 that we read this morning. And now he begins, and we started this last week. In order for Paul to preach the gospel, what is gospel? Just if you break it down, good news, right? Euangelion, good news. In order to preach the good news and to put it in the proper context and to make it meaningful and have some force behind it, he has to first start with the bad news. He starts with the need of the gospel. And in verse 18 last week, we kind of saw the, 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 the foundation for this section between 118 and 320. That section is, of this book is going to show the universal need for the gospel, the sinfulness of both Gentiles and Jews. And while he starts with the Gentiles in verse 18 and, and sort of transitions to the Jews in chapter 2, a lot of what he says applies to all people everywhere anyway. So this morning we're, we're looking at a text from verse 19 to 23. <clears throat> and sometimes in this study I might move a little faster than you think I should, but I, I'm trying to keep both the big picture and the small picture together in coordination and in context. And so I don't want to break this section up because I, from beginning to end I think it's making a critical point. But look at the main point of this sermon. Mankind is without excuse for rejecting God's revelation of himself and for descending into idolatry. So we talked about the, the um, when we looked in verse 18 last week, the ungodliness and the unrighteousness, the rejection of God and embracing of false religion as well as the immorality and the life. And then we see Paul starting to break that down and starting to expand first upon the ungodly portion of it. And in verse 19 to 20, we have the first point. Mankind is without excuse for rejecting God's revelation. And we saw from Psalm 19, he's revealed himself around the world. Everyone around the globe has sufficient testimony that there is a God. And universally, everyone apart from grace around the world rejects that testimony. We'll talk about that more in a minute. But in this section, we see Paul beginning to un unpack what he means by ungodliness in verse 18. Man living in rejection of God's rule over him, rejection of the true God, and the embracing of idolatry. Look back at verse 19, <clears throat> if you will. He's, he said the wrath of God, the, the righteousness of God is revealed. We talked about that in verse 17. So the righteousness we showed there was the righteousness that God gives through faith in Jesus Christ. The right standing that we need, we are gifted through faith in Jesus Christ. And then also, the righteousness is revealed, the wrath of God is revealed against the suppression of truth, the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. And he connects it right here, for or because, in verse 19. For, he's continuing his argument. Now watch this and ask yourself if you believe this. For, what can be known about God is plain to them. Look at that word plain. You know what that means? Plain. It's plain to, him, to them. It's, it's obvious, one translation says. They have no right to complain. They have no case against God because what can be known about Him is plain to them. God has clearly revealed Himself in creation. It means, this word plain means manifest or evident, clearly seen, recognized, that which appears clear and evident. It's obvious and undeniable. Sure, people deny it with their mouths. I used to, and I've told y'all that. I knew good and well there was a God. I just didn't want him ruining what I thought was my fun at that point. 
He says it's plain to them. Look at it. What can be known about God? You can insert there from natural revelation, from the creation, okay? First part of Psalm 19. It's plain to them. Look at this. For God has shown it to them. And I don't know why translations do this, and they go in a different way with, with words that are part of the same family. Literally, and you'll see other, other translations say it this way, it's plain to them because God has made it plain to them. And that's the verb. God has made it plain to them. And we talked about it even last week. I won't spend too much on it. Through conscience, through the creation, which includes conscience, as well as everything you see out there. It's plain to them because God has made it plain to them. God has clearly revealed Himself in us and around us. God has clearly revealed Himself in creation. And like I said, the, the Net Bible says made it obvious. I mean, the, the living, New Living Translation says made it obvious. They get things right every once in a while. You have to be careful with that type of thing, but, but sometimes it, it does say it plainly. The Net Bible is the one that says God has made it plain to them. Catch that. Ask yourself if you believe that. I'm not going to skip over that lightly. What can be known about God through general revelation? What is plain to them? It's not covered up. It's not hidden. It's not something you have to dig, 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 and be very sophisticated and have all these rational arguments to be able to figure out. No, no, no. It's plain. It's pers perspicuous. It's clear to the smallest child as well as the oldest adult. Now, whether or not we like it and respect it is one thing. But God's Word says what can be known about Him in creation is plain because He's made it plain. Now look, he goes on. He says, for his invisible attributes and he, apposition, comma there. He's going to explain a little more about what he's talking about. His invisible attributes, the things that we can't see with our eyes, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly perceived. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, Eternal, in other words, there is an almighty source of everything. This didn't just pop into existence. All of this order didn't come out of chaos. Darwin had no idea the complexity of the, of the single cell when he started talking about evolution. He had no idea about DNA and all of these things that we know to be true now. Are you saying we didn't evolve by chance? Absolutely that's what I'm saying. And that's not anti-science, and I don't have time to go into all that. That's real science. But I want your noses in the book this morning, because I think a lot of us don't believe this, or we wash over it, or we let people tell us things that aren't true, and we believe them. His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, and His divine nature there speaks, that word speaks of His majesty, His greatness. No little God did this. As far as you look out, as far as you look in, you never come to the end. No little God did this. Why do we think? Because the universe is big. God couldn't have done it. You know what infinite means? Almighty. No limits. It testifies to all of that. Now look what, this, look what Paul says. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. One little, it doesn't say clearly communicated, although that's true. They have been clearly perceived. It gets through. You know, you know what it means to perceive something? It means to be aware or conscious of something. It, it, the, the communication gets through. We know there's a God. That's why I said when people say they don't believe in God, don't believe them. 
They're suppressing the truth. They're putting up a smokescreen. They want to meet you on neutral ground that doesn't exist. They want to argue for why they don't believe in God. Be they just plain uh, what they would call themselves an atheist or an agnostic. That's worse. You claim not to believe in God and you blame your unbelief on Him. You're not making a sophisticated half step towards anything. You're denying what God has clearly revealed. But look, it says it's clearly perceived. In verse 21, he's going to say, although they knew God. Perceived is one word in the Greek and it means to acquire definite information. Play all the games you want to. You know there's a God. You know you'll stand before Him someday. You might not like that. I said this last week, I'll say it again, the motto of the atheist. There is no God and I hate Him. Why spend so much time railing? Why do you care if people believe in God? You know there's a God. Come on. Everything testifies to it. Listen, arguments from order and creation and all of this are not bad arguments. They just don't get through because they're not the power of God for the salvation. But it's man's willful rejection of them that's the problem. Not the problem with, with most of the arguments. Anyway, Kant was wrong. Revelation destroys his theory. But anyway, not about philosophy this morning either. Look at it. It's been clearly perceived, His invisible attributes, his, that there is an almighty, eternal God who is majestic and glorious. It gets through. Thomas Schreiner, great commentary on Romans, one of the ones I'm using. He says this. You might know him as Tom Schreiner. God has stitched His greatness into the fabric of the human mind so that His majesty is instinctively recognized when one views the created world. That is what the Bible teaches. You say, well, I don't believe the Bible. Well, that's on you. Christ's resurrection proves it's true. In fact, he's the one you'll stand before someday. And I'm not trying to be mean. I'm trying to just take some of the power of the silliness that surrounds you away from it. So that you can stand in God's word. Listen to me. Everyone knows there's a God. They just suppress the truth in favor of unrighteousness. Verse 18. So, look at Paul's conclusion. He says this. His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Watch what he says. Conclusion here. Mini conclusion within the context of an argument. I mean small, not a lot of them. Okay. They are justified in their unbelief. Because it's hard to figure out whether or not there's a God. Is that what that says? They are without excuse. They are without excuse. There's no excuse for unbelief. All excuses have been removed. There's no excuse for not believing in God and loving God and obeying God. You will not be able to stand before God someday and say, I would have believed in you if you'd have just made it plain. You'll know at that point that that's not true. But all excuses have been removed. It's not His fault that you don't believe if you don't. Let that sink in. It's not God's fault if you don't believe. It's not His fault. He's not been unclear. You have no justification for unbelief, nor would I. Douglas Moo, another commentary, often rated one of the best, maybe the best. He says this, God in His essence is hid from human eyes. Yet much of Him and much about Him can be seen through the things that He has made. His essence is hidden, surely. He's invisible. God is spirit in those who worship Him. He's visible in Jesus, but 
His nature, the divine nature is invisible, yet much of him and much about him can be seen, seen through the things he's made. Point. Point. God does not have to further prove himself. I mean, we're going to get there, so I'll go ahead and bring it up. But, and it's about election and all of those things. But if you get to chapter 9, and, and there's, there's a tendency when you hear the doctrine of election to accuse God of injustice. And Paul asked the question, is there injustice in God? You know what he says? Who are you to speak back? to the Lord Almighty. Why? Because it's clear that He is. He's sovereign. He's in control. And we wouldn't have it any other way if we understand it rightly. See, the Bible starts with God because it doesn't have to prove Him. Without Him, those of you who are dying for me to say something about presuppositional apologetics, I'm going to give you a little tip. Without Him, everything you see, think, and experience is impossible. Possibility of the contrary. Creation clearly reveals a creator. God has clearly, plainly revealed himself. But sinful man seeks to stifle that revelation, but they are without excuse. Look back at the end of 20. Anyone who would say there's no God or that they find satisfaction in another God or whatever, they're without excuse. Without excuse. No justification. God has proved who He is. He's proved who His Son is. He's proved that the gospel is true by raising His Son and He's committed all judgment to His Son and someday we'll stand before Him. End of Acts chapter 17. I'll let you go read the text. Man is without excuse for denying God. But man doesn't stop with denying God. Look at verse 21. Second point, man, mankind is without excuse for descending into idolatry. A refusal to honor the true and living God and give Him thanks for life, breath, and everything else results in idolatry. If you won't have Him, you, you're going to worship something. Be it you, a statue, a car, a house, a girl. We're created to worship. We're going to worship something. Look at 21 to 23. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him. See that? Although they knew Him. That's not saving knowledge, but they knew of His existence. It was clear within and without. They knew God. They did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise... They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. What is the chief end of man? Yeah, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Or Piper says to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. But it's to glorify... We are created for God's glory. And that's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. We all want to know who we are and where we came from. There you go. Our chief end is to glorify and enjoy Him. But, but apart from grace, this is what man does. Although they knew Him, they did not honor Him or give thanks to Him. There's a rejection of sound judgment in the rejection of God. Kind of sits on the face of things, it's obvious. But look what Paul says. They did not honor Him or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Futile thinking is useless thinking. Thinking that's lacking in truth as it relates to God and who He is and His creation. It's thinking that's foolish or wicked. Remember, foolishness, in the, in, like we just studied Ecclesiastes, you can go listen to some of that, is a rejection of God and His ways. It's going our own way and turning our back on God. And therefore, it's wicked thinking, useless thinking, vain thinking, thinking that is lacking in solid in truth. And their foolish hearts were darkened. What is it? Their perception is dimmed. 
They're losing ability to discern the truth. Yes, it's a judgment of God. When we reject Him, He'll sometimes give us over. And we'll see some of that as we move forward in chapter 1. That's something you don't want to hear. God gave them over to their own way. Ephesians says this about being darkened. It says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, the unbelievers, the rest of them, in the futility of their minds. Now watch, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, and that's all God's fault. No, it says due to the hardness of heart due to the rejection of God, due to the suppression of truth and not wanting to have Him and His light in their life. God is light and in Him is no darkness at all, right? Jesus is the light of the world. Reject that and you dwell in the darkness. You ever been in your house on a moonless night? Maybe it's a stormy night and the power goes off all of a sudden and you don't have these automatic lights that come on? Boy, that's darkness you can feel right there, isn't it? can't see your hand in front of your face. Darkness fills the house. You, you lose the ability to clearly see the way forward. And spiritual darkness is a darkness in the understanding that is a result of the absence of God in the life and in the thoughts. Thy word is a light unto my path. Without it, Walking through the woods and suddenly your flashlight goes out on a moonless night. That's no good. Especially if you don't have another one. Can't see where to go. See, there's judgment on this suppression of truth, on this rejection of God. There's a giving over to the natural or supernatural, how you say, outflow of that which is dwelling in darkness. At every person's core, what Paul talks about being dead in sin, all the other ways we talked about that. At every person's core where the knowledge of God should be and produce fruit, there's a settled darkness that can only be overcome by the gospel. Remember, the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Not my intellectual arguments. Not in my, not in my allowing somebody to take God off the, off the judgment bar, put him in the witness table and them sit on the judgment bar claiming they have some authority see at every person's core there's a darkness that can only be removed by the gospel look what it says in verse 22 Paul is being straightforward here remember he wrote this to the church in Rome and he's explaining to them the bad news we're not used to talking like this it makes us a little bit uncomfortable but God wants us to know what the problem is. If you're not trusting, believing, and following God, it's your fault. Not His. Look at this says, Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. A lot of weird-looking idols out there, aren't they? Statues and stuff. Kind of strange. See, again, this is not an intellectual accusation. Some of the smartest people I know are idolaters. I used to have... My mom worked with a doctor, and he was a great doctor. He was, he was uh, from India. Uh, Ramesh was his last name. And he was a great doctor... And in fact, he had, he had helped me with a lot of stuff. Um, and so he allowed us, because he was friends with my mom, he allowed us to fish on his property, on his pond. And by, he had a house up on the hill. It was kind of an old house. So he was building a new house down on the other, the head end of the pond. And as that thing went up, and it was, it was pretty grand, and it was pretty impressive, um, we were out there fishing one day, and it's open. You know how new construction is. It's open sometimes. It doesn't have doors and stuff yet. And so I told, I told my son, I was like, well, let's just, go, let's just go look at it and see what he's building here. And we walked through what would have been a door to the basement. And I don't know what idol this was, but it, he had almost touched the ceiling. Literally, the thing must have been eight feet wide, and sitting there right in front of me was this, false god 
that was, I guess it was the one out of the myriads that he had adopted. And he had put that, because he wouldn't have, if he'd have waited until he finished the house, in no way he'd have got it in there. He had to put it in there while it was, before it was, and build around it. Nice man, obviously in darkness, had him a nice, weird, ugly, scary looking idol. We didn't look at the rest of the house. We just backed out and like, okay. <laughs> I'm good. Let's go back fishing. Let's pray for him. Claiming to be wise. Isn't that what you see all over the place? All the puffed up critics who, there is no God. You don't have to say it out loud, but you think, you are a fool. You're a fool. You're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. See, it's not an intellectual accusation, it's a moral one. To be foolish is to reject God. And they not only refuse to worship and serve the true and living God, they embrace false God. It's kind of the flip of the Thessalonians. You remember them? How they had repented and turned from false gods to the true God? Natural man has done it the other way around. That's why they had to reverse the curse. Rejection of the true God and an embracing of idols. It's an exchange, verse 23. They've turned their back on the true and glorious and immortal God and created their own God or gods. What, what's the point? God, man will always worship something, but it, it'll usually be a God that he can control, that he can offer a few things to or in some way appease. And Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man's and bird and animals and beasts. What's the important point here? Listen, please get this. All false religion is not man seeking God. False religions are not men seeking God. That's not what they are. They're man's way of trying to reject God and create their own God that they can worship. False religion is just another way of suppressing the truth. Moo, Douglas Moo again says this, the text, this text asserts that God has revealed something of himself to all people of the world that he has made, but it is equally obvious that this rejection is, this revelation is universally rejected as people from, as people turn from knowledge of God to gods of their own making. Man was created to have dominion over the animals and he ends up worshiping them. What happened at the golden calf? Go read Exodus 32. As soon as those people could throw off Moses, they went right back to their idolatry, made up a bunch of lies about a golden calf and were bowing down to worship it, even called it the Lord. I'll let you go read that in Exodus 32. But the point is, they, like everybody else, apart from God's grace, had rejected the true God in His revelation and had descended into idolatry into false religion, which is the natural outflow. Idolatry is the natural outflow of not having the true and living God as your only God. That's the first commandment, right? Have no other gods before me. Second commandment, worship me my way, not with images. Honor my name, my day, on we go, right? All false religion is man's created attempt to suppress the truth and go his own Way. Listen, really, there are only two religions in the world. Do you know that? And yes, don't, don't give me that sappy stuff that Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. It is a relationship, but it is a religion. Read James. Pure and undefiled religion is. So, why did I go there? Just to say, there's a lot of stuff that you just really shouldn't say. But there are only two religions in the world. Something in my hand I bring. And that one wears a thousand dresses. Man's way of appeasing God. Something in my hands I bring to offer to make me right with you. Something I can do to make God happy with me and bless me. It's all false religion and various dresses. And the only other religion that exists is nothing in my hand I bring. Christianity, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, revealed in the word alone, reformation. Those are the soulless, by the way. 
And I took that in, from Rock of Ages, a hymn that we sing sometimes. Now, listen to this. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. I am filthy, I need to be cleansed. I am helpless, I cannot save myself. You must save me. So I'm not offering anything to make me right with you. I'm simply looking to you and what you have provided. Wash me, Savior. Praise God we have a Savior. Some of you have been itching. When are you going to get to the gospel? Now. You're not your own Savior. Jesus is our Savior, if we have one. And let's not go ahead and say it. I might as well say it. Jesus is the only one. There's not another one. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Peter said in preaching, there's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He is our Savior. Christ lived for us. Why, did he just, why wasn't He just beamed down onto the cross, died for our sin, right back up. Well, we couldn't just be cleansed. We're only halfway there. We need a positive righteousness. Every one of us, if we're going to save ourselves, we have to keep God's law in thought, word, and deed. You know what the testimony of your own heart is and what the Bible is? None of us have done that. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all need a Savior. So he came and fulfilled all righteousness by living under his own law. He told John the Baptist, we must fulfill all righteousness. So that there would be a righteousness that could be imputed to us when He saved us. And then He died on the cross paying the penalty for our sins. The universal testimony of Scripture, the soul that sins shall die. The wrath of God is revealed of ungodliness and unrighteousness. There's a real thing called condemnation. Hell is real. Wrath is real. It's something that Jesus came to deliver us from by taking the wrath due us upon Himself. We'll talk about propitiation later in Romans. Diverting that wrath off of us onto Himself. He lived for us. He died for us. He, he drank that cup dry. That's why He was sweating blood the night before because as God and man, the Son of God was going to face the eternal wrath of God for do all of His people and He was going to drink that cup dry. Only being God and man could He do that and He hung on that cross in those few hours. The whole creation went dark recognizing the truth of what was going on. That the wrath of God do the sins of His people. See, justice had to be satisfied. God can't just sweep it under the rug. It was poured out on His Son. Christ, the scripture says Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. He was buried. He was raised the third day proving it's all true. Seen by more than 500 people at one time. Not the same. This is not that sermon. Salvation, therefore, is a free gift. What God demands of us because he sacrificed his son. I, I'm not, I, I used a man. Go read the end of Acts 17. It says he commands all people everywhere to repent. What he commands, he gifts. Those who the Spirit is at work in through the preaching of the gospel will hear it, believe it, and turn to Christ. Are you trusting in Jesus and Jesus alone this morning? Kids, are you trusting in Jesus and Jesus alone this morning? God so loved the world, loved the world in this way that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. See, that's the cure for our helplessness. That's the cure for our foulness. And that is the way we are washed. We are cleansed from our sin. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We are justified or declared righteous. We are adopted. And now we are being sanctified or growing in grace. Because God has applied the redemption purchased for us by Christ. He's applied it to us by His Spirit applying the gospel to our hearts. See, J.B. Phillips summed it up in his translation when he says this, they knew all the time that there is a God. And you know there is a God. And I know there is a God. And praise God, He's a gracious and merciful and long-suffering and forgiving God. But He's a just God who will know, He won't clear the guilty, He won't just sweep our sin under the rug. But He's provided a way in the sacrifice of His Son for us to be saved. Turn and trust in Him. 
Next week we'll move on to the sorted list of sins that flow out of idolatry. Um, and so be praying for me. We're going to deal with it thoroughly. And I'm uh, going to talk about it as clearly as we did this week. But we're going to stop right there this week and just make a couple of points of application. What's the first one? Believe in God or believe God. Believe God. He says it's clear. He says it's plain. He says it's been perceived. Everyone knows there's a God. Believe God. That'll help you when you're trying to talk to that person who claims not to believe in God. And you don't necessarily have to say it out of your mouth. I know you do. Right? But just keep the gospel the main thing. Don't be steered off because like the woman at the well, people who don't know Jesus, be they atheist or not, try to divert with smokescreen questions. I'm not saying don't answer any of their questions. I'm just saying keep the gospel the main thing. Everyone knows God exists. They just refuse to love Him and try to blame it on Him. Embrace His revelation both for life and witness. Believe God. He says He's, cl he's clearly revealed, and He is. Number two, worship God as He's revealed Himself in His Word and according to the way He's commanded. We don't, as believers, we don't descend into idolatry. We, we seek to honor Him and worship Him according to who He is and what He's commanded. And that was the whole point of our worship series that we did. The third point is realize. Realize that all other religions are man's attempt to replace God, not to seek Him. None seek God, Romans 3.11. We're going to get there. Nobody, apart from God's grace at work in their life, stops suppressing the truth and turns to really seek the true and living God. God must be at work in us for that to happen. Left to ourselves, we, we seek a lot of placation. We seek a lot of ways to say we're seeking Him, but we're not seeking the living God. God's Word says nobody seeks God. None is good. None is righteous. No, not one. We'll get there. Fourthly, submit to God. Believe in Him, worship Him, and submit to Him. Honor Him and live with grateful hearts. Listen, if you are lost, if you're not trusting in Jesus this morning, if you know in your heart and would say with your mouth if was asked, no, I'm not a Christian, I'm just asking you this morning to just let God peel back the layers. You know, stop putting up fronts. Look to Christ and Christ alone for salvation. You will stand before Him one day. You have heard the truth. You will be responsible for it. Turn today and trust in Jesus. Repent and believe the Bible words for that. And if you are saved, hear the gospel. <laughs> Afresh and anew. Live for Him. Proclaim Him. Keep Him the main thing when you're talking to others. Because what is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes? The gospel. You don't have to be a genius to be a witness. You don't have to have every question ready to answer. Some of the most powerful words are, I don't know. But let me tell you what I do know. And I'll get back to the don't know. We'll look up the questions we don't need, to, you know. Hear the gospel and live for and proclaim him. Please look back at this text and please look at these words. That, it, that What can be known about God is plain to them. He's made it plain. It's been clearly perceived. Unbelief is without excuse. So when someone claims to not believe in God or if they have found, claimed to found satisfaction in another God or another religion, don't believe them any more than you would believe your friend that said that house in the woods was a miracle of nature. Preach the gospel. Proclaim the gospel. Share the gospel with them. Tell them about Christ and how to be reconciled to God through Him in, in His way, the way that is all of grace, that is free to us because it has been so costly to Christ. Trust in Christ. Live for Christ. Proclaim Christ. To live is Christ. Let's pray. Lord, help us. Help us to believe your word to the extent that we live in its light. That we love you. Submit to you. Serve you. That we trust in your son and wait for him to come again from heaven. And that we embrace the mission. 
to make disciples of all nations. Help us to believe the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of Jew and Gentile, everyone who believes. Lord, I pray for those who may be listening to the recording or watching over the live stream or maybe who are here in the building with us who aren't trusting you this morning. I pray that you would work in their hearts that grant them repentance and faith, that they might turn and trust in and receive the only, the blessed, the glorious Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And those of us who do know you, Lord, if we're, if we're backslidden, Lord, bring us back. If we're half-stepping, if we're rationalizing sin, convict us and grow us, Lord. But those of us who do know you, help us to rest in you. Help us to rejoice in you. Help us to be walking close with you. And help us to be speaking of you. The glorious God, the eternal God, who would sacrifice his son to satisfy justice and give us salvation as a free gift. Only hardness of heart would reject this Savior. Create faith and repentance. Nurture faith and repentance. Revive your church. Build your church. Bless your church. May this church be a lighthouse for your gospel. A God-honoring, Christ-centered, spirit-filled, gospel-trumpeting church. And it will only be so when our lives are that way. So each and every one of us, as a result of your grace being applied to us, as a result of believing the gospel and trusting in Christ and Christ alone, may our lives be growingly God-honoring, Christ-centered, spirit-filled, and gospel-trumpeting. Thank you for taking us out of this stance of rejection of the plain truth and bringing us to submission through the preaching of your gospel so that we now are before you with our hands wide open. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Help us, Lord. We look to you and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.